0: Welcome to Navarra Live. I'm Moira de McLean, not Michael Walker, and I'm joined tonight by the incomparable Rivka Brown.
1: Hello, Moira. Good evening.
0: Coming up on tonight's show, we will be looking at Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement. We're also going to bring you two stories about outrageous censorship over Palestine. And we'll be asking who gets the gas off the coast of Gaza. First story. Israel has agreed to pause its relentless bombing of Gaza for four days to allow a hostage exchange to take place. Under the deal agreed last night, Hamas will hand over 50 women and children currently being held by them. In exchange, Israel will will release 150 Palestinian women and children currently held in its Prisons. Now that's just a fraction of the 7,000 Palestinian political prisoners currently held by Israel, according to the prisoners' rights group Adamir. The pause may also be extended, with Israel agreeing to an extra day of no bombs for every 10 further hostages released by Hamas. According to a Hamas statement, Israel has also agreed to allow expanded deliveries of humanitarian aid. Up to 300 trucks will now be allowed in each day of the pause. But a quick reminder that prior to the 7th of October, Gaza received 500 trucks of aid per day. Israel and the US will also stop surveillance drone flights over southern Gaza and restrict them to just six hours per day over northern Gaza. Hamas has said the pause will begin at 10am local time tomorrow, but Israel has made it clear it's nowhere near the end of its campaign. This was IDF spokesperson Peter Lerner on Sky News earlier. If, uh, by any miracle, all of the hostages um,
2: are released over the next few days, will you still continue on uh, with the war in Gaza after that?
3: I'm not aware of any change in our operational directive. I don't think there's, there's a decision not to dismantle and destroy Hamas as a governing authority. I think it's clear to everybody, every decent person that understands the brutality of this organization, the mercilessness of this organization, that they can't be allowed to maintain control over Gaza. Um, so our, our goals and uh, the directives that dictated to us by the government, I'm not aware of any change in that. I still believe and, and I think we, we all need to understand and believe Hamas have to go and they have to go as soon as possible.
0: And even while the deal was being discussed by Israeli politicians, the bombing continued, with at least 100 Palestinians killed overnight, according to Gaza's health authority. Many Palestinians displaced from the north have fled to the south for safety, but they haven't found it there. In the south of the Strip, the city of Khan Yunis has been bombed yet again. The strike reportedly targeted a residential compound made up of around 20 houses. Also in Khan Yunis, this horrifying drone footage shows around 100 killed Palestinians being buried in a mass grave. According to a health ministry spokesperson, the people being buried are unidentified. And he also said, quote, all the cemeteries are full, we don't have a free grave. The next piece of footage is from Anadolu News Agency and it's even more upsetting, but it does show the full horror of Israel's attacks. This is the aftermath of an Israeli strike on Nuzrat refugee camp in northern Gaza. Those are the legs of members of a single family, men, women, and children, all killed and buried beneath the rubble of their house, blown up in an airstrike. Horrific sights like this beg the question, is a four-day pause to the bombs enough? But not much more has been done to secure a more lasting peace. And even just a pause appears to be causing anxiety in some circles. Politico has reported on the Biden administration's view of the deal. In their article, they include this disturbing paragraph. The administration remains wary about Netanyahu's endgame and seeming lack of a plan for what to do once Hamas is defeated. There was no sense that the pause would turn into a lengthier ceasefire, a senior administration official said. And there was some concern in the administration about an unintended consequence of the pause, that it would allow journalists broader access to Gaza and the opportunity to further illuminate the devastation there and turn public opinion on Israel. Yes, you heard that right. Some in the Biden administration are concerned that a pause will mean more people will find out how brutally Israel is treating civilians in Gaza. Perhaps instead, American authorities should be worried about getting about the journalists who are getting killed in the territory. The conflict is now the deadliest on record for journalists, according to the Committee to Protect Journalists. 53 reporters at the time of airing have now been killed in Gaza. That is nine journalists killed every single week since the 7th of October. Rivka, what did you make of this ceasefire that's really just a pause?
1: I think it's exactly that, Moya, that what's being described as a ceasefire really is. Something much more disappointing than that, which is a temporary cessation of hostilities, primarily for the purpose of providing humanitarian aid, basically a humanitarian pause by a different name. I suppose the only difference is that hopefully the negotiations between, brokered by Qatar, between Hamas and Israel, will continue during this ceasefire with the hopes that it will build more momentum. Um, I think the problem is, I think what I'm concerned about isn't you know, so much what the, I mean, partly what the Biden administration says about journalists being allowed into the region to, to see the devastation that's gone on, but also that Israel will use this four-day pause to regain control of the narrative of what's happening in Gaza, to reassert its status as the most moral Army in the world because look, we're allowing 300 t- trucks a day. Maybe it's not the 500 we used to allow in, but it's more than the you know 10 or 20 that we were allowing t- until now. You know, we're allowing um, civilians to 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 leave Gaza. We're we're facilitating the forcible uh, movement on displacement of. of, of, of Tens of thousands of people, where we're at least going to um, have a bloodless, or, or we're at least going to have a, a, a less uh, brutal second Nakba. Um, so I think that there's a there's a challenge here, and that Israel um, could see this four day pause as an opportunity to reassert its reputation on the international stage without having to actually commit to a permanent cessation of hostilities, which is something that is still hugely controversial within Israel. I think, you know, the proposition um, of a permanent ceasefire is something that the Israeli public, despite the entreaties of the desperate families of the uh, 240 hostages held by Hamas, you know, most of the Israeli public still wants a continuation of um, the military operation in, in Gaza and, you know, the supposed complete decapitation of Hamas, which we know is not, well, A, is probably not possible <laughs> because of the nature of the organization. You know, many of its leaders are not in Gaza. Many of them are abroad. But also because the nature of guerrilla uh, warfare is that the the, the the fighters disappear into the civilian population, meaning that any kind of serious, um, uh, you know, destruction of Hamas's military capabilities requires the enormous, you um, you know, a, a mass-scale killing of, of civilians. Um, yeah, I think what's what's perhaps interesting, um, though, to, to note as a maybe more kind of optimistic, um, on a more optimistic note, is that international pressure does work. You know, we talk about this concept of Israel operating two clocks. One clock is the, 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 the clock of the military operation. How long do we need to, um, you know, to, to to deplete Hamas's military capabilities how long do we need to achieve our military aims and then the diplomatic clock how long do we have before the world turns against us it turns out that it's about two months. <laughs> and, you know, Israel's getting to a point now where not only um, its conventional um, sort of enemies, but also its its historic allies in the West, such as um, France and, and sort of other Western nations, and of course, international bodies like the UN um, are turning en masse against the country, not to mention the enormous opposition that Israel is facing privately um, from, from the US, which is supposedly, you know, Takes an approach of bear hugging its allies, sort of publicly saying that it supports it, but privately, you know, um, particularly after the the death of you know over ten thousand, I think it's thirteen thousand Palestinians now, will be saying, look, there's there's not a long that you don't have long before we we can't publicly support you anymore. Everything will depend basically on how Israel treats this ceasefire. Does it treat it as a way of kind of um, rapidly reframing the narrative before it kind of continues um, as planned? Or does it take this opportunity um, as an off-ramp away from further hostilities, continue engaging, um, kind of negotiating with Hamas? And that's the important thing. You know, this ceasefire is a recognition by Israel, whatever it says publicly, that Hamas is a political partner because it's engaging with it in diplomatic, you know, negotiations. It might say you publicly that Hamas are um, terrorists and we don't negotiate with them, but there are, as we speak, Israeli officials and Hamas Hamas officials sitting around tables in Doha.
0: Let's move on to our next story. Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has presented his autumn statement to the House of Commons. Its contents had been widely briefed beforehand, so there weren't many surprises, in a spending plan that was friendly to business and workers, but cruel to those on benefits. Hunt's focus was the economy and growing it. Here's how he began.
3: In today's autumn statement for growth, our choice is not big government, high spending and high tax, because we know that leads to less growth, not more. Instead, we reduce debt, cut taxes and reward work. We deliver world-class education. We build domestic sustainable energy and we back British business with 110 growth measures. Don't worry, I'm not gonna go through them all. But... But in summary, Mr. Speaker... (laughs) They remove planning red tape, they speed up access to the national grid, they support entrepreneurs raising capital, they get behind our fastest growing industries, they unlock foreign direct investment, they boost productivity, they reform welfare, they level up opportunity to every corner of the country and they cut business taxes.
0: So tax cuts and lower debt promised there, except not really. Among the measures affecting ordinary workers, Hunt announced this.
3: Today, Mr Speaker, I'm going to cut the main 12% rate of employee national insurance. Yeah. If I cut it by one percentage point to 11%, that would be an extra £225 in the pockets of the average worker every year. Yeah. But instead, I'm going to go further and cut the main rate of employee national insurance by two percentage points oh, yeah. That change will help 27 million people. It means someone on the average salary of £35,000 will save over £450. For the average nurse, it's a saving of £520. For the typical police officer, a saving of £630 every single year. And Mr Speaker, I would normally bring in a measure like this from the start of the new tax year in April. But instead, tomorrow, I'm introducing urgent legislation yes. to bring it in from January the 6th so people can see the benefit in their payslips.
0: God, I hate seeing them all sitting there and jeering. Ugh. Anyway, that cut to national insurance, as well as other cuts to business taxes, is being paid for by the same high level of inflation that's made so much of your money worth so much less. In its assessment of Hunt's statement, the Office for Budget Responsibility said this... Higher inflation boosts tax revenues, but also welfare benefits, while higher interest rates push up debt servicing. But because departmental spending is left largely unchanged, this delivers a net fiscal windfall of $27 The Chancellor spends virtually all of this on a two-pence cut in NIC's permanent tax relief for business investment and further welfare reforms, leaving debt falling by a narrow margin in five years. I think it's quite interesting to note the uh, departmental spending has not changed. National insurance sounds like a tax cut, but it isn't really. It, that's because freezes to income tax thresholds means people will be paying more income tax on their earnings. That's called fiscal drag, with the OBR saying this. By 2028 2029, frozen thresholds result in nearly $4 million additional workers paying income tax, 3 million more moved to the higher rate, and 400,000 more paying the additional rate. Meanwhile, catch my next show at The Glory under the name Fiscal Drag. Also, despite claiming to have lowered taxes, Hunt's autumn statement hasn't really touched the tax burden on workers. This graph shows taxes as a share of GDP. The right hand side looks as what at what's happened since 2010 and what's set to happen going into 2028. The solid blue line shows that in 2028, tax will be 37.7% of GDP, the highest it's been since 1948. And according to the OBR, most of that increase is due to income tax going up, although they're not the most reliable quango in the book. Other announcements for workers included a 10% rise in the living wage as well as lowering its age. Age threshold from 23 to 21. Younger workers will also see an increase in the minimum wage with those aged 18 to 21 seeing an increase of pence per hour. People on benefits will also see a rise in their payments with Hunt promising a 6.7% rise. That's a move he described as quote, compassionate. Much less compassionate though was his approach to those who are too ill to work.
3: Every year, we sign off over 100,000 people onto benefits with no requirement to look for work because of sickness or disability. That waste of potential is wrong economically and wrong morally. Yeah. So with the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, last week I announced our back-to-work plan. We will reform the fitnote process so that treatment rather than time off becomes the default. We'll reform the work capability assessment to reflect greater flexibility and availability of home working after the pandemic. And we'll spend 1.3 billion pounds over the next five years to help nearly 700,000 people with health conditions find jobs. Over 180,000 more people will be helped through the universal support program and nearly 500,000 more people will be offered treatment for mental health conditions and employment support. Over the forecast period, The OBR judge these measures will more than halve the flow of people who are signed off work with no work search requirements. At the same time, we'll provide a further 1.3 billion of funding to offer extra help to the 300,000 people who've been unemployed for over a year without any sickness or disability. But we will ask for something in return. If after 18 months of intensive support, job seekers have not found a job, we'll roll out a programme requiring them to take part in mandatory work placement to increase their skills and improve their employability. And if they choose not to engage with the work search process for six months, we will close their case and stop their benefits.
0: just want to add that it's absolutely not compassionate at all to uprate the benefits the way that Hunt did. Uh, it's simply moving them in line with inflation. And worse than that, the government weren't even going to do it to the rate of 6.7, which is uh, October 2022's inflation rate. They actually wanted to pin it originally on September 2022's inflation rate, which would be only a 4.6% rise in benefits, and would have represented a 3 billion cut. They got enough pushback and the fact that it would damage so many people that they didn't do that in the end. But to describe it as compassionate, A compassionate move when benefits in real terms have already been being cut by millions is bonkers. Uh, So do not believe the hype that Jeremy Hunt is surrounding and the narrative he's surrounding his autumn statement with. Those were pretty punitive measures. And at the moment, benefits claimants already have to look for work or face sanctions, including cuts to their payments. But under Hunt's new plan, benefits will be entirely withdrawn, leaving people who are already struggling going into free fall into deeper poverty. The long-term sick and disabled will also be pressurised back into the workplace with tougher workplace capability assessments. That's a procedure already widely thought of, I will actually say, widely is, demeaning, dehumanising, and often cruel. But for the Tories, it's a much safer bet than asking why more people are off sick than in previous decades. That's because the answer to that question would involve taking a look at their record 13 years of austerity underfunding of the NHS, housing crisis and a completely incompetent approach to handling a global pandemic. Now, earlier today, I spoke to economist Grace Blakely and I began by asking her for her take on the autumn statement.
2: Honestly, it felt like being back in 2010. Um, It is kind of mad the way that uh, this Conservative government has basically gone back to the just completely and utterly discredited Austerian orthodoxy that we were brought by David Cameron and George Osborne. I mean, everything from the combination of proposed um, cuts to uh, government departments that we're going to be seeing down the line alongside tax cuts which again you know if you're really thinking about austerity from a kind of economic perspective it should be tax rises alongside spending cuts but instead because you know this is just a naked kind of assertion of class war really on behalf of uh, of this government as austerity has always been from the start you have this combination of planned spending cuts with tax cuts that are primarily going to benefit the wealthy as well as this rhetoric that we haven't really seen for a while which is um this kind of uh you know war on on scroungers on benefits claimants and of course we know that conservative economic policy always has to have a scapegoat of one kind or another there has to be this uh you know Group of people to blame, whether this is migrants or, in this case, you know, people who have refused to go back to work because you know they're just lazy, um, which is obviously not the case. You know, we've seen lots of people falling out of the labor part, labor force for many reasons, including um, issues surrounding kind of long term ill health in the uh, in the wake of the pandemic. So it really does just feel like Groundhog Day. It's it's like going back to twenty ten.
0: Why do you think that? economic proposals from the left are treated as these really radical, wild ideas that will never work. But then we see over and over again, the politics of austerity being repeated year on year, driving the country further to immiseration. And it's treated as sensible financial management.
2: I think it's a really interesting question. And it does hinge on the wider political context. Now, was this period um, really, from kind of I suppose like 2016 onwards, where both parties were really struggling to kind of get away from austerity. Uh, Boris Johnson um, and Dominic Cummings famously kind of said that this was not something that they wanted to hear uh, being mentioned. You know, they wanted to rid themselves of this image of being the party of austerity. And obviously, you know, we had a Labour Party that was committed to uh, to reversing many of those cuts. Um, and the reason for that was. the the changing political context effectively you know we had a relatively radical leader of the Labour Party we had around that a kind of strong movement that built links between you know movements on the ground with trade unions um with kind of voices in the media that were able to make the case for um this kind of you know this change i was going to say radical change but it's not a radical change it's just kind of you know basic kind of sound macroeconomics um and that also obviously taking place in the context of brexit and people saying right well we need a a kind of shift in the way that the economy works um and really over the last several years we've kind of seen a reversion to the political norm of a lot of those movements kind of being fought back obviously a dramatic shift in leadership of the labour party and trade unions really shifting on to just fighting for the day-to-day concerns of their members, understandably, because, you know, they're really being crushed by by inflation. So they're just really arguing for, for wage increases in line with that. And with that political context having shifted, it's easy for the Conservatives to kind of return to this fiscal orthodoxy, which is embedded within many of the institutions within the British state. You know, this is really like Treasury thinking 101. Um, it's easy to kind of return to that normal because there just isn't that wider political context pushing for a big shift. Um, And I think people imagine that there was more of a shift away from the kind of austerity thinking over the last kind of three or four years than there really was. You know, Boris Johnson obviously had this kind of levelling up agenda, um, which A wasn't particularly big, B wasn't very sensibly distributed, and then C ended up getting eroded quite significantly by inflation. Um, So, you know, there wasn't really the significant shift away from austerity. And obviously, we've had this long, long, long period of cuts, which has left this huge, um, you know, just it's, created horror basically in many of our public services that will require a huge amount of commitment and money to reverse over an extended period of time. Um, So it kind of feels like the Tories can say, right, okay, well, we've had this period of, of generosity under Boris Johnson, and now we're reverting to tax uh, to tax cuts for the rich and to spending cuts for everyone else, because we spent so much money giving everyone loads of money during the pandemic and, and wasn't that nice, whereas actually the vast majority of the money that was distributed by the state ended up in the hands of big businesses or landlords or banks or whatever. Um, but it really is that shifting political context that has allowed them to do that, because there isn't this counter-narrative that is saying, what is going on, even though actually there are a lot of economists who are now willing to speak up and say, this is crazy. You know, we know that austerity is thoroughly discredited. Um, But it just really speaks to that point that um, without, you know, those political dynamics, those political dynamics are really kind of what shape the the wider economic context um and it was you know we had austerity to begin with basically because the state decided that it was time to wage class war in the wake of a financial crisis that had kind of potentially threatened the legitimacy of the entire capitalist system so we needed to kind of fight back against the uh the potential you know rumblings of uh of of dissent and um you know we're in a, a kind of similar situation now but that powerful movement seems to have ebbed somewhat
0: Hmm. Belt tightening until it becomes a noose around our neck. Let's try and finish on maybe some good news. Uh, living wages going up. The Chancellor says this will benefit three million workers. Is this accurate? Should I be popping a very small bottle of champagne?
2: <laughs> Hardly. This really reminded me, and George Osborne obviously tried to do the same thing. It reminds me of a quote from um, Nikos Palantzas, who's a Greek Marxist theorist of the state. And he talks about how Um, the ruling class kind of organises itself within state institutions and comes to kind of cohere as a class that is conscious of its own interests. And he said that the difference between the victories won by the working class within the capitalist state and those won by the ruling class is that the victories won by the working class are concessions that are provided um, when you know, capital feels the need to provide those concessions. Um, And we're obviously in a situation now where we are coming up to a general election and the Conservative Party is in desperate need of votes wherever they can get them. And they know that because the Labour Party is also committed to this kind of, you know, discredited fiscal orthodoxy they can say we're doing all the same things as labor but also look we're being very generous and having giveaways you know in the form of tax cuts and also in the form of, of minimum wage rises um so you know this concession that is effectively being granted as a, you know, a giveaway prior to the next election is not something that you know i don't think many people will be particularly celebrating especially given that you know we had a, a decade of wage stagnation after financial crisis then we had some of the largest uh falls in wages that we've seen you know, on record during the pandemic in terms of real wages. Um, and those have not been made up for by the kind of slight um, edging ahead of inflation um, with wages that we've seen in recent months. And also, you know, if you look at the economic forecast, it looks as though we could be going into a downturn, perhaps a recession. Productivity is still at the same levels as it was prior to the pandemic. And then you know, barely higher than it was before the financial crisis. And we know that wages and productivity are tied. So, you know, yes, it's good that we're having some kind of increase in the minimum wage, but the fact that it's being given as kind of red meat to the electorate by a government that's not going to win an election anyway, um, and which has been responsible for just, you know, the immiseration of, of millions of people's lives in the run up to an election, is uh, not something I think that we should be celebrating. You know, these are um, questions that need to be answered, I think, by a kind of, you know, it would be ideal if we had a coalition of movements and the labour movement and, you know, um, uh, people on the streets and political organisations that were able to articulate precisely what we could demand what we should be demanding from the state rather than just having, you know, here's a nice little gift that you can have prior to an election. But unfortunately, we are not in that position at this time.
0: Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement may have garnered the most headlines, but there was another important event that happened in Parliament today. That sit-in, organised by the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, happened in Parliament's foyer as Hunt began his speech inside the Commons. Let's go to our next story. Over the past few weeks, there have been a lot of examples of censorship and deplatforming when it comes to demonstrating solidarity with Palestine. Tech CEOs have spoken out against Israel's campaign in Gaza, have been forced to resign. Hollywood actors have been dropped by their agents. Powerful editors have been pushed out of their publications. But today we want to bring you two particular stories of censorship around what's happening in Palestine. One looks at private companies, one looks at the UK state. Both demonstrate how networks of power operate. Let's start with the story of how Eventbrite, a private ticketing website, was seemingly pressured by a US conservative movement against trans people into de-platforming events linked to Palestinian rights. Now, in recent weeks, Eventbrite has been depublishing pages for events linked to Palestinian rights, many of them in the UK. On the 26th of October, and this date is important, An event at Queen Mary University titled Carnage in Palestine, Oppression, Complicity and Ethical Responsibility was delisted by Eventbrite. Now, the description said this event would address the importance Palestinians have attached to non-violent forms of solidarity in their struggle for freedom, justice and equality. Eventbrite sent organisers of the Queen Mary University event an email explaining the decision to delist it. And they said this. Eventbrite is committed to providing a safe, inclusive and respectful platform for live event discovery. We have the discretion to remove any content that we determine violates our community guidelines or terms of service. This includes all forms of discrimination and hatred rooted in anti-Semitism. Other pro-Palestine events have since been delisted by Eventbrite. One of those was an Atlanta teach-in organized by Palestine Youth Movement and Community Movement Builders, which focused on the links between Black and Palestinian liberation and, quote, the policing systems in Atlanta and Palestine. On the 4th of November, organizers were told their event had been depublished because it could, quote, contribute to a risk of harm or incite violence. Back in the UK, a fundraiser raising legal funds for Palestine action activists who sat on the roof of an arms factory was also delisted by Eventbrite for the same reason. And most recently in the UK, the Greater Manchester branch of Stop the War Coalition were notified on Tuesday that their event page for people to buy seats on a coach traveling to Saturday's national Palestine demo had also been delisted for the same reason. Now, none of these events, a teaching, A panel talk looking at how non-violent resistance works, a bus journey to a peaceful protest, and a legal fundraiser seem as if they breach the privately held guidelines around either discrimination or inciting violence that Eventbrite later began to use as their rationale for depublishing them. Unless, of course, support of Palestine is a violation of the company's guidelines. So, what's going on? Well, we need to look to that cursed place, the US of A. This is a woman named Riley Gaines. Gaines is a 23-year-old former competitive swimmer. But over the last year, she has become an outspoken conservative face of a movement against allowing trans women to compete in women's sporting categories. Gaines is currently on a college-speaking tour of the US that has occasionally seen protests and physical clashes between demonstrators and attendees. And on the 25th of October, Fox News reported this story. Eventbrite Marketplace removes Riley Gaines's Protecting Women's Sports, cites community guidelines violation. Now, Fox News reporters wrote that Eventbrite had depublished an event titled Protecting Women's Sports with Riley Gaines that was scheduled to take place at the University of California, Davis, in November. Eventbrite said the event violated their community guidelines and terms of service. In an email sent to Gaines, the company wrote this. We do not allow content or events that, through on- or off-platform activity, discriminate against, harass, disparage, threaten, incite violence against, or otherwise target individuals or groups based on their actual or perceived race, ethnicity, religion, national origin, immigration status, gender identity, sexual orientation, veteran status, age or disability. Quite a list. Now, Fox News featured an an interesting comparison between Gaines's delisting and a panel event in New York. They wrote this. Although the event featuring Gaines was removed, several other controversial events appear to remain active on the platform's ticketing marketplace. One was from a group called Tempest NYC, which posted a Stop the Genocide Free Palestine event that is scheduled to take place next week. Now, Tempest is a group, an LGBT group, in fact, based in New York. Their event's description referred to Hamas militants as Palestinian resistance fighters who had, quote, broken through Israel's siege of Gaza. Tempest organisers also stated that the panel would do this. This panel will explore the historical context that led to the current moment, the dynamics currently at play, and the possibilities for building international solidarity for Palestinian liberation. Now, we know the framing of Hamas as resistance fighters has become a huge point of contention and can really offend some people. But the panel does not seem to break Eventbrite's guidelines or US federal laws which prescribe material support for designated foreign terrorist organizations, which Hamas is in America. And that material support is considered financial or with other resources. Either way, what happened next went way beyond this one event. The story of Gaines's shutdown Eventbrite events spread across US conservative media and social media. Gaines herself posted Eventbrite's email the next day on X and encouraged a boycott of the company. She wrote this, I love all the people in my comments saying they've deleted their Eventbrite account. Give them the Bud Light treatment. Gaines was referring there to a right-wing boycott campaign that happened earlier this year when Bud Light launched a marketing collaboration starring a transgender influencer. And US conservatives heard Gaines's call. Republican politicians like Ted Cruz, Eric Schmidt and Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin supported the Eventbrite boycott publicly and lobbied the company's directors privately. And the line they picked up was not only that Eventbrite was deplatforming women's rights events, but that it was concurrently allowing pro-Hamas events to continue unchallenged. This morphed into a repeated line across media and social media that focused solely on Eventbrite supposedly being pro-Hamas. In a podcast appearance on the 30th of October, Glenn Youngking said his office would no longer be using Eventbrite because they quote carried events around Hamas.
4: Let's just be clear that when a company decides it's going to make statements on on uh, political and social issues, they have to live with the consequences. And the blowback here has been warranted. I mean, let's let's just first uh, recognize that a a Hamas terrorist group invaded Israel and conducted barbaric attacks on women and children and killed nearly fourteen fourteen hundred people. Uh, Israelis. And they need to be condemned. And there's no place to sit on a fence here. You're either condemning it or you're condoning it. And the fact that, first of all, Eventbrite continues to carry uh, events around Hamas is is unbelievable. But then, on top of that, to proactively terminate an agreement with Riley uh, is beyond belief. And to say that they are trying to protect uh, some group uh, in one and not the other, uh, I think results in the kind of action that I've taken. And I, as governor, I have, I have uh, uh, told our, our political committee that we will no longer use Eventbrite. Uh, the governor's office is no longer using Eventbrite. And I would ask your listeners, do not respond or RSVP to an invitation from Eventbrite. Just stop using them. On top of that, to proactively terminate an agreement with Riley uh, is beyond belief. And to say that they are trying to protect uh, some group uh, in one and not the other, uh, I think results in the kind of action that I've taken. And I, as governor, I have I have uh, uh, told our, our political committee that we will no longer use Eventbrite. Uh, the governor's office is no longer using Eventbrite. And I would ask your listeners, do not respond or RSVP to an invitation from Eventbrite. Just stop using them.
0: Never mind that there were no Hamas-related events on Eventbrite produced as evidence of this claim, US conservative media instead seized on any event linked to Palestine. Indeed, they repeatedly cited the UK Queen Mary University event as an example of other pro-Hamas listings that Eventbrite was supposedly allowing on the site. And we know that Kevin Hart, the chairman of Eventbrite, saw these specific allegations. How do we know this? Because on the 26th of October, he responded publicly to a conservative news site called Outkick that was saying Eventbrite carried pro-Hamas events. Now, Hart wrote this. I am the co-founder and chairman of Eventbrite and to accuse Eventbrite of being pro-Hamas is egregious and moronic. How could you make an unsubstantiated slander that I support these genocidal maniacs? Please go fuck yourself. The last comment represents the individual views of Kevin and not that of Eventbrite, etc., etc., etc. But that very same day, the Queen Mary University event organizers received notice that their panel listing had been pulled down. And since then, the other pro-Palestine events we have highlighted have received the same treatment. So, anti-trans campaigners morph their cause into one that impacts Palestine solidarity events. Rivka, what do you make of this story?
1: Well, I think it's kind of amusing the way that Fox News, um, presents the, um, injustice, um, that's facing, you know, gains events cancellation. It's sort of like, you know, our hateful event isn't allowed, but yours is like, it's just so it's such a self-own. Um, but I think there's also, I mean, there's also a, a, obviously, a, um, a persistent irony, um, to the fact that so many of these, um, sort of pro-Israel or transphobic or both in this case, um, campaigners will very quickly resort to to boycotts when obviously if uh, Palestinians and their supporters wanted to give Israel the uh, Bud Light treatment, um, they're anti-Semitic. So, you know, it's uh, one rule for them, I guess. Um, But I think, you know, we shouldn't be surprised at all that there is this um, pivot you know, this knee-jerk pivot of the um, transphobic movement towards um, expressing or towards directing their ire at Palestinians and and sort of demonstrating their support for Israel. You know, the Argentinian philosopher Maria Lagones talks about the coloniality of gender, the idea that the, that the way that we conceive of gender as as binary and as hierarchical and the genders as kind of representing some sort of natural order um, is deeply rooted in in kind of European um thinking and, and, and kind of enlightenment philosophy, and that it was imposed very much on the rest of the world through the project of, of colonization. Um, and anyone who's been to Israel or even, in fact, observes Israeli sort of media and culture from afar will know that Israel is one of the most uh, highly gendered um, countries on the planet. And it's, you know, it's, it's no coincidence that it is also, um, it was founded as a, as a kind of settler colony. You know, we have the idea of much Muscular Judaism, that the strong uh, indigenous Israeli Sabra who would kind of um, succeed and vanquish in some ways the sort of um, weak effeminate uh, diaspora Jew. So we already know very, very well about the kind of links between um, transphobia and sort of support for Israel um, and, and sort of, or at least a sort of um, a kind of colonial attitude and an imperial attitude, a white supremacist attitude, which underpins the, the Zionist uh, project. Uh, but I think what's, what's really um, also telling here is how vastly different the the standards of acceptable speech are for supporters of Palestinians, and you know, uh, and transphobes. Frankly, you know, you've already said that at Gaines' previous tour events, there have been violent clashes. You know, she's literally inciting people um, to, to, to commit these acts of violence at and around her events. Um, whilst in, in the case of the Palestinian events you cited, we're talking about academic discussions of. Um, Palestine and Israel and a sort of seventy-five year occupation and um, or a sort of half-century occupation and the, and the and the relationship between Hamas and the uh, Palestinian civilian, you know, like these are such extrapolated academic kind of milquetoast events, you know, like in the best possible way, they're very important um, versus these hate rallies that um, that we're talking about. Like there's there's just there's no comparison between them, and yet they're being kind of brought onto a Level by this insane moral panic that not only um, flattens all types of um, solidarity with Palestine or even academic inquiry into Palestine, but also equates all of that with the kind of violence that's been committed by Hamas by actually having a campus event about Palestine, you're raping babies. Like that's what you're doing. Like it's, 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 it's an absolutely hysterical level of moral panic that I don't think I've seen with anything else in, in my lifetime. Um, you know, perhaps trans issues is a good example of, of, of where I have perhaps seen something comparable. Um, I think what we should also pay attention to, though, and what is quite helpfully very telling, is the um, is the comment and the, provi- the kind of um, Kevin Hart's rising to the bait that was presented to him, basically by the the, the right wing um, sort of lobby. Um, and sort of reminding us through his his statement about Hamas's genocide lacks and so on, not Israel's genocide lacks, by the way, Hamas's genocide lacks supposedly. Um, that, that the internet is owned, you know, that the ninety percent of the real estate on our internet is owned by liberals through to absolute lunatic conservative far-right conspiracy theorists like the people that Elon Musk hangs out with. You know, Facebook, Instagram, um, Twitter, now X, have long cracked down on Palestinian speech. We've seen shadow banning. You know, 2021, um, we saw, uh, you know, Facebook being found in an independent review to have over-moderated content in Arabic, not just pro-Palestinian content, just Arabic content. um, And under-moderated content in Hebrew. Um, You know, this is is not a new phenomenon, the idea of um, Palestinian speech being policed very heavily by these platforms. And the reason is that they're being run by people like Kevin Hart, who's shown his colours through the the way that he's described um, the Hamas attack and or the way he hasn't described Israel's response to it, we should say. You know, uh, Zuckerberg put out a very similar statement about how he stands with Israel. Um, you know, the CEO of, of, of um, Alphabet, uh, Sundar Pichai, put out something very, very similar on the 11th of October. You know, these are people who are in a, a sort of operating in a, in a social environment and in a kind of political environment that is incredibly reactionary. You know, the people that have the ear of these CEOs, of the Zuckerbergs, of the Moss, of the Pitch eyes are people like the Anti-Defamation League, who we know are an extremely right-wing sort of anti semitism group. People like the Center for Countering Digital Hate, again, run by a bunch of incredibly um, right-wing, um, sort of, also, they would sort of say center-right liberals, people with a lot of um, influence, actually, in, in the sort of Starmer um, leadership. And so, you know, we only have to think about who is making the decisions here to understand perfectly well how it is that, uh, you know, these kind of academic um, talking shops are being treated as if they were on the same level as the Operation Al of Flood. You know, this is the kind of water that they're swimming in. These people aren't, aren't, you know, these people are are not only not sympathetic with the left, they're entirely ignorant um, of, of, of kind of The Palestinian cause of uh, you know of of racial theory and politics, which is also why so many of their policies, by the way, kind of create this um, very flattening sort of policing of hate. You know, as if all hate were created equal, as if you know a Palestinian expressing hatred towards Israelis were the same thing as a cis woman expressing hatred for trans women. You know, these people are 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 fundamentally very ignorant of, of of. you know, pa- of power relations and of kind of uh, of, of class warfare, and 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 in so doing, they sort of create an environment in which all hate is treated as equal, um, but but somehow Palestinian um, hatred, quote unquote, um, is particularly egregious.
0: I also think it shows how effective the right are, at least in the US, at knitting together different campaigns. You had, you know, this this bevy of Anti-trans activists who managed to turn this story and their campaign against Eventbrite into something that was even more emotive because of the current moment. By saying, well, you know, yeah, you've taken down this event that because you said it's 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 inciting hatred on the grounds of discrimination against gender. But look, you've also got these events that are pro Hamas. They immediately tapped into a much bigger fear and panic right now. It just shows how effective they are. I wish the left had that ability to link together struggles in the same way. Um, But it's not just private companies censoring anything related to Palestine because investigative outlet Declassified UK published this story on Monday. UK government blocks MP questions about Gaza-related activity at its Cyprus base. Exclusive, Ministry of Defence takes extraordinary step of censoring all requests for information by MPs about RAF Akaratiri on Cyprus, which Declassified has reported is facilitating arms supplies to Israel's war on Gaza. Now, Declassified's reporting found that the British government has blocked MPs from asking about activity at a giant British airbase in Cyprus and Also, what military support the UK is providing to Israel? Kenny Makaskill, ALBA MP for East Lothian, told Declassified he put forward several parliamentary questions, one asking about the military support we're giving to Israel and the role of RAF Akarotiri in the supply of that military equipment. In response, he received this. Your question has been queried because it is subject to a block by government, the Ministry of Defence has stated it will not comment on operational matters at this base. This is apparently, quote, highly unusual. Makaskill said he had never had such a block on his parliamentary questions before and Declassified's previous work has found that the RAF has made over 30 military transport flights to Tel Aviv since the 7th of October. The Ministry of Defence has refused to provide any detail of cargo or personnel on those flights to Declassified. Does the British public not have a right to know how their tax money is being spent on military campaigns? Next story. A permanent ceasefire in Gaza has not been agreed upon yet, but that hasn't stopped its natural assets already being further carved up by world powers, because Gaza is home to gas. A lot of it. In 1999, a 1 trillion cubic metre natural gas field was discovered off the coast of Gaza. Plans to develop it over the years have stalled. In 2003, for example, Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon vetoed a deal with British Gas to supply the country with natural gas because British Gas was developing the field on behalf of the Palestinian Authority. That deal would have seen the Palestinian economy receive around £31 million a year. But Sharon ruled it out, saying the money could be used to support terrorism on the Palestinian side, despite assurances that all revenues for Palestine would go through an account audited by the international community. But that gas is still there. Most recently, in June 2023, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu announced a three-way deal with Egypt and the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank to develop the Gaza gas field. These negotiations were overseen by America. Who else? You might be asking, how can Israel greenlight development of gas it doesn't own? It's a great question. But they did. And under the proposed deal, both Cairo and Tel Aviv would manage Gaza's gas supply. The New Arab reported at the time that the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank would receive part of the revenues. However, Hamas, which governs the territory the gas is actually in, would not be, quote, allowed to benefit from the economic profits until resolving the issues of the four Israeli captives in Gaza since 2014. Now, Israeli authorities claimed at the time the deal would further Gaza's economic development. They noticeably failed to say which occupying power had been stifling such economic development for the past 16 or 56 years. At the time, also, Hamas publicly didn't seem keen on the proposed plan for Israel and Egypt to manage Gaza's gas. This is is what Ismaili Radwan, a Hamas media spokesperson, told the New Arab in June. Gaza's gas is owned by all Palestinians in Gaza, and they alone have the right to invest in it. Israel occupation cannot impose its requirements and restrictions on our capabilities and natural wealth. That deal seemed part of Israel's attempt to further normalize relations with surrounding powers, Then, on the 7th of October, Hamas attacked. Just 23 days later, Israel announced it had awarded 12 new gas exploration licenses around its existing Leviathan oil field in the East Mediterranean Sea, which, of course, is off the coast of Gaza. At the time, this suggested an attempt to once again strengthen international support for its war and also dependency on Israel's gas supplies. But how can gas do all that? Well, earlier today, I spoke with climate corruption journalist Rachel Donald, who runs the platform Planet Critical. I started by asking her what role gas plays in the global energy supply at the moment. Gas is one of the main fossil
5: fuels that are being used to fuel the world right now. Unlike uh, oil, however, there's lots of it left. Since 2008, academics have been warning about peak oil. And we can see that in the United States, for example, we are now drilling into shale oil, which means that we are running out um, to combat this, governments and the fossil fuel company have branded LNG, liquid natural gas, as a transition fuel because it emits 40% less carbon than coal. However, that's a really, really low bar. Um, the world should be transitioning to a renewable economy. However, to maintain control over the energy supply, which is fossil-fueled, um, governments uh, are keen to for us to use the 125 years left of uh, gas reserves that there are in the world. Where is gas in the Israel-Palestine region? It's off of Gaza's coast. Um, So a huge gas field, the Leviathan gas field, which contains 22 trillion cubic feet of natural gas, is just off of Gaza's coast. And this is just uh, one of the many reserves of uh, fossil fuels that are in Israel, in the occupied territory of Palestine, and in international waters. Uh, Now, in 2019, the U.N. released a report um, on these fuels stating that they were valued at $524 billion. Now, that's half a trillion uh, in 2019 money before, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine and before COVID and before inflation and all of that. So it's a huge, huge, huge amount of money um, and a huge field for a, you know, regime, uh, the West, that is running out of gas since it sanctioned Russia.
0: Yeah. Can you tell me a bit more about that? How does the Russia-Ukraine war play into the West's search for gas? So when Russia
5: invaded Ukraine, one of the first things the EU did was slap it with sanctions and stop importing its gas. Now, we have since seen that that wasn't particularly effective because essentially what happened was other nations started importing it, rebranding it and selling it as their gas. Uh, So there's still lots of Russian gas in the supply chain. Um, So this was more of a performative action by the EU than anything else. Uh, But it meant that they had to find another supply. And as we can see, there was sort of like a big panic over the past few years about, you know, would we be able to heat our homes in winter? Was there going to be enough gas? Now, interestingly, in June 2022, the European Union signed a memorandum of understanding with Israel and with Egypt uh, to import some of the gas in the Leviathan gas field essentially to shore up the supplies that are missing since they stopped importing Russia's gas.
0: Do we know who the gas field of Gaza belongs to? Is there a distinct answer here? I'm not an expert in this,
5: but based off of the 2019 UN report, which was on this topic, um, a lot of it is in international waters, right? And so it's kind of disputed and it should be shared uh, amongst all of the countries and the states close by, including Palestine, and interestingly, the UN report does state that Israel has only existed since 1948, whereas the Palestinian people have been there for a long time. It literally says that in black and white, and so they have a sort of heritage and inheritance to this to this gas. Um, and they did almost exploit it. In 1999, the Palestinian National Authority signed a deal with BG Group, which discovered the first gas field um, off of the coast of Gaza, which contained one trillion cubic feet. And the Israeli government at the time was okay with that. Um, they thought that it would sort of harbor, help harbor good relationships between the states um, But essentially, with every Israeli government, that deal has changed. So every time a right-wing Israeli government gets in, they take the deal off the table. And then every time a centrist or kind of left-wing-ish government gets in, uh, they put it back on the table. And that went on and off, kind of yo-yoing between the two. Until 2007, um, when the Israeli government went around the back of the Palestinian National Authority to negotiate directly with BG Group. That deal fell through. They went back and hurriedly tried to renegotiate that deal in summer 2008. And the UN report states that um, it looks like Israel was keen to get those negotiations negotiations done before invading Gaza in December 2008. And it was that invasion that took all of those gas fields off the coast of Gaza under Israeli control.
0: What's been the most recent deals on the table concerning that gas field in Gaza I know there was something going on in June 2023 was there not in June 2022
5: there was the memorandum of understanding signed but the most recent um was October 30th this year when 12 licenses were granted to six companies uh to explore uh more of the fields off of Palestine's coast essentially
0: Which companies were those and what was the detail of those licences?
5: So those companies, there were 12 of them. I don't know all of them off the top of my head, but one of them was EP, one of our own. Um, And the deals are just like any others, essentially Uh, exploration licences, just to go in and see what there is available to exploit.
0: This week, the US's energy security advisor has been visiting Israel and he's been talking about the need to centre this gas field at Palestine's post-war economic reconstruction, and he said, as part of that, he's sure the Israelis will 100% allow Palestine to retain any revenues because the gas belongs to Palestine. What do you make of this assertion in the light of the current Israeli campaign on Gaza? <laughs>
5: I think it's a very interesting assertion, and I think that there's a lot to unpack in it. Um we could say that historically, um, what he's saying is absolutely nonsense. Um, under no circumstances would a Netanyahu government allow for Palestine to exploit these resources. Otherwise, they would have he would have done it at some point over the past 20 years. Um, and the fear of funding terrorism has been used a lot as an excuse to take this gas out of the hands of the Palestinian people to whom it belongs. There's another angle, though, that I think is very interesting, which is that The United States is now positioning itself as a negotiator between the two states um, and coming out as if it's their idea, you know, that uh, we're going to give some of these weapons to Palestine, it will help, it will sort of smooth over relations between the two. So they get to come out of this looking like a good guy, like the guy who kind of saved the, the day if this is what happens. However, it also means that you are entrapping a people who have been dispossessed and illegally occupied for 75 years into a particular regime, that of Western hegemony. Because the world is split essentially at the moment between like an energy war and a materials war. And the Western regime runs on fossil fuels. It can only run on fossil fuels because that's what it has access to. However, a renewable regime would come out of China. And I think this is one of the reasons that the West is being very slow to transition to renewable economies, because it essentially guarantees China coming up um, and being a dominant world power, because it has control over all of the material supply chains that you need to build a renewable economy. So I think it's very interesting that the United States could be using this as another form of neocolonialism, essentially to um, force a people into a form of like energy bondage, essentially, where after so long, after so much abuse, they finally get something with which to develop their economy. However, that thing that they're using to develop their economy is actually the very tool that has been used um, to dispossess people and to force a hegemony around the world. And really, it's not the future of a sustainable world and one in which people are treated well.
0: How do we discuss factors like the Gaza gas fields in this military campaign without sounding conspiratorial
5: oh they've really done us good haven't they that we can't discuss resources without sounding conspiratorial even though there is a very long history of governments uh knocking over regimes and invading one another and starting illegal wars in order to get their hands on it i think you know if anyone would sort of question the importance of resources i would say two things Um. The United States, the United Kingdom, illegally invaded Iraq uh, less than 20 well, twenty years ago um, in order to get their hands on their oil. And we know that now, no matter the party lines of the people who organized that campaign may be. We know that now. Um, and the other thing is that where do you think wealth comes from? Money, even though it might be this like illusory thing that we kind of hang on to, always began as natural abundance, always began as natural resources. Power is all about being able to transform energy. It's a basic law of physics. And if you can take natural resources and turn them into wealth, that means that you have a huge amount of power. So natural resources have been, I would say, at the cornerstone of every major conflict of human societies whilst they've been trying to grow. We can look through the entire vein of history to see that. Sometimes they get wrapped up as ideological campaigns. That's a really good excuse when really you're using brute force in order to just feed your economy.
0: Let's go on to our next story. The man you're about to see is the former director of Barack Obama's National Security Council, Stuart Seldovitz. This video was captured by a food cart vendor in New York City.
4: To my
3: friends in immigration. Really? Okay, go, yeah. And to the Egyptian, uh, the Muhabarat wants your picture. Okay, yalla,
2: go.
4: Yeah?
3: You know the Muhabarat? Hmm?
4: The Muhabarat.
2: No, I don't know. You
4: don't know? I just
2: speak English. No? Yeah, go, yeah.
4: Muhabarat in, in Egypt will get your parents. Go, 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 Does yalla. your father like his fingernails? They'll, they'll take them out one by one.
3: go, <laughs> go. Well,
4: why should I go? Why should I go? Tell me why I should go. I'm standing here. I'm an American. I have free. It's a free country. It's not like Egypt.
3: They smile for me.
4: Mm-hmm. <laughs> did you rape your daughter like Muhammad did? Hmm? Did you rape your daughter like Muhammad? I speak English. You only speak English?
0: No, speak English. No. You don't
3: speak English? Yes. All right. Well, that's, that's, see,
0: that just shows how ignorant you are. One vile attack didn't seem to be enough for Seldovitz, who also served as deputy director of the US State Department's Office of Israel and Palestinian Affairs from 1999 to 2003. This is what he said on a separate visit to the food cart.
3: You support terrorism. Listen, go. I'm not supporting support something. You do. You
4: support terrorism. I'm
3: not sumbo- You Go. Support I'm just working here. Children.
4: You're a terrible person.
3: You kill children, not me. What?
4: Go. My kids? What about my
3: kids? You kill children, not me. Go. I didn't kill
4: children. Okay, why well, see you here? You know why? If we killed 4,000 Palestinian kids, you know what? It wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Go,
3: go, go,
0: go. It wasn't enough. 4,000 Palestinian kids. It wasn't enough. After those videos went viral online, the New York Times approached Seldovitz for his side of the story, reporting this. According to Mr. Seldovitz, who said in a phone interview on Tuesday that he had not seen the videos, the episode started after he asked the vendor if he was Egyptian. As the conversation progressed, the man expressed support for Hamas, Mr. Seldovitz said, though no such claims are captured on any of the videos that have been made public. At that point, I got rather upset, and I've said things to him that, in retrospect, I probably regret, though, that that I do regret, Mr. Seldovitz said. Instead of focusing in on him and what he said, I expanded into insulting his religion, and so on. Asked if he was Islamophobic, Seldovitz said this. I've worked with Muslims, I have many people who are Muslims and Arab and so on who know me very well and who know I'm not prejudiced against them. Rivka, does it surprise you that a man like this, who would stand in front of a food cart vendor and attack them by saying, you know, do you rape your daughters like Mohammed did or 4,000 killed kids in Palestine isn't enough, would hold a key role in American government, not just American government, but a government that was branded as liberal at the time, Barack Obama's administration, would hold such a key role relating to the Middle East and Israel and Palestine?
1: It doesn't surprise me at all. And that's, I think, because, you know, we know that right-wingers are just more honest liberals. It's not that liberals don't think all of the same xenophobic, Islamophobic, you know, American exceptionalist or in this case, white supremacist kind of stuff. Um, It's just that they don't say it. They just put it into Policy. You know, if we think about what Obama did while Stuart Saldowitz was was working for him, he deported more people than any other president. He approved more drone strikes in his first year in office than Bush did in his entire administration. He expanded the surveillance of Muslims, you know, through the Countering Violent Extremism Initiative, basically America's answer to prevent. Uh, He directly supported the Saudi led coalition in its bombing campaign against Yemen. Um, You know, it's it's what's more surprising is that he said it out loud. Um, and I think that's in some ways where we have to be um, sort of maybe start to rethink our understanding of what uh, racism really is. You know, I think we, You know, even on the left, because of our media environment, have a tendency to think of the most egregious forms of of, of racism as the ones that you can capture on an iPhone and post all over social media. You know, that that is racism. It's far harder to quantify the racism of a counterterrorism initiative like the CVE or, you know, the the, the sort of racist ideologies that underpin drone strikes or support for um, the war in Yemen. And I think that's um, I think what we should be kind of careful of because Biden is actively currently trying to whitewash his reputation when it comes to that sort of first superficial type of racism. I don't know whether many people um, in the UK will will be aware of this, but, um, you know, A week or so ago, a couple of weeks ago, the Biden administration announced its first national strategy to counter Islamophobia. Kamala Harris said it was to counter, to combat, quote, unquote, the surge of hate in America. And and so this, I think, is is exactly the kind of, um, you know, whilst on the one hand, someone like Stuart Seldowitz appears to be um, demonstrating um, that kind of violent Islamophobic um, belief, we should really be wary of thinking all we need to do is get rid of this kind of Islamophobic street level abuse. You know, we've already seen Muslim groups um, in the US saying that these kinds of anti-Islamophobia campaigns are just kind of whitewashing of of an administration which fundamentally supports the Israeli endeavor of, of, um, you know, of, of genocide, which is a fundamentally racist um, endeavour um, and, and, and the US supports it because of its notion of what Israel represents as an outpost of European power in the Middle East um, and so I think what this episode shows us is that we're very drawn to in our media environment episodes altercations on an individual interpersonal level um, between racists and victims but what we have to bear in mind is that ultimately the real damage is not what Stuart Seldowitz, like some idiotic comments that he makes to a poor, you know, street vendor, but the but the policies that America is approving in Palestine that is countering is like countering that is countering Islamophobia on a much more profound level. Um, and and so yeah, I think ultimately we shouldn't be surprised that someone who's who was and clearly ideologically still very much is part of a kind of state apparatus um that is fundamentally i mean islamophobic isn't isn't the term for it it's 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 imperial <laughs> um it's neo-imperial um should be spouting this kind of um street level abuse it helps us to kind of unlock some of the ideological underpinnings of that state apparatus but really the state and its policies are what are the kind of are what should be the subject of our criticism here not some, you know, bullshit that a uh, former Obama, um, you know, official is saying to some street vendor.
0: I think very incisive analysis, but I will plead the ability to do both and focus on the bullshit and the state level apparatus. Rivka, thank you for so sure. much for joining me tonight. We had a very packed show. Your contributions were excellent.
1: Thanks for having me. It was been a it's been a pleasure, and yeah, a really like full day of. I mean, hopefully the ceasefire will turn into something more permanent.
0: We hope. And for those of us who pray, we pray. Thank you, everyone, for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6pm, where Michael Walker will be taking my normal slot. For now, you have been watching Navarra Media. Good night.
3: This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.